and on fire for the preservation of our nation. The Charlie Kirk Show. Hey, everybody. Charlie Kirk here. Email us your thoughts. As always, freedom at charliekirk.com. I said this once, and then I got a lot of emails saying it's not true, but then I had other people saying it is true, including a theologian. But over 365 times, in fact, exactly 365 times, it says in the Bible, do not be afraid or do not fear. What is fear? Where does it come from? Is any fear helpful? Well, with us for the full hour is Dr. Mark McDonald. He is the author of the great book, United States of Fear, How America Fell Victim to Mass Delusional Psychosis. I'm so excited to dive into this. I have so many questions. And we met when we did a doctor's panel about a year and a half ago, and I can't wait to explore this with him. Doctor, thank you so much for joining our program. Good to see you again, Charlie. It's been a while. You as well. I remember that you were... Uh, you and I were joking around because of the stupid mask mandate, and you talked about how damaging it could be um, for children, especially. We're going to dive into that. So the floor is yours. Tell us about your book. So I wrote this book in November of last year as a way to encapsulate what I saw as not a pandemic of a virus, but rather a pandemic of fear. And that's the way I've seen this from the very beginning. Uh, we have not been, largely speaking, in a medical crisis, at least not a real one. The real crisis is actually been psychological. Uh, I am a child and adolescent psychiatrist, so I see people with mental illness, especially young people, which is my specialty, every single day. And since March, April, May of 2020, it's been a complete mental health disaster. So I set out to understand why, what's going on. I began writing, I began speaking, and eventually I put it all together in a book, which as you said, is called United States of Fear, to describe really three things. One, how did we get here? What is mass delusional psychosis and how did it happen? What are the cultural antecedents? This didn't just show up with the virus flying over from China. It has been with us for a long time. The virus simply just germinated the seed. Uh, the second part of the book is really about masculine and feminine and how male and female and attacks on the two sexes and the two genders has been a large driving force for decades, really, and will continue even after this pandemic ends. And then finally, I write briefly about the way forward. How do we move ahead? And I've been actually writing a new book now that will focus specifically on that in a great degree of detail. Well, there's so much that we're going to cover, and I, I'm afraid it's not enough time. But uh, so we're going to have to have you in person because this is something that really interests me. I'm by no means a expert in psychology, but if you're in leadership of anything, um, you actually have to be really good at reading people quickly and organizing them effectively. That's effect. That's what leadership is. And so let's start with a really basic question, and forgive me for this question. What is fear? Is any sort of fear good? And hmm. why is the level of fear we're seeing right now troubling? Fear is not a bad emotion. It actually helps protect us in some ways. Uh, we're afraid of jumping in front of a bus. That keeps us from jumping in front of a bus. We're afraid of burning our hand on the stove, similar to pain. Uh, when you feel pain, you pull your hand off. Now, chronic pain, of course, is pain when there's actually no injury, when there's no risk, when there's nothing wrong. That is not good. That is not helpful. So fear in and of itself is not a problem. But when you fear things that don't exist or when you continue to fear a minor risk and it inhibits your ability to live your life fully, now we have a problem. So the problem I have with fear and why I wrote a book about it is not to castigate fear as a bad emotion in and of itself. There's no bad emotions. But to point out that when fear becomes exaggerated, when it becomes chronic, and when it becomes inhibitory, 
we wind up in a state of perpetual trauma. And I think that this country and many other countries around the world have been living in a state of perpetual, unending, chronic trauma fueled by fear for the last two to three years. And the consequences of that are devastating. They are economic, political, social, psychological, and ultimately, you lose your independence, your ability to think, your ability to criticize, your ability to really make judgments on your own without outside guidance. And that's why really we are where we are now. It's not because of a virus. It's because of fear that is inhibiting us to act and to think autonomously as individual Americans. So the level of fear we still have in America, we could call it paranoia. We could call it irrational. You could fill it in. So you're a psychologist. You are some psychiatrist. I'm sorry, psychiatrist. Can, what's the difference? It's a common by the mistake. Way? Can you? Everyone makes this mistake, Please, Charlie. A yeah, psychologist is trained in either clinical or research psychology through university, meaning a PhD. So you have a doctoral degree from an academic institution. A psychiatrist is actually a medical doctor. I'm just like an OB, a pediatrician, Got internal it. medicine doctor. I went to medical school, got an MD. I just happen to specialize in mental illness. Well, that's that's helpful. And I appreciate the correction. I have a whole thing where I want to be corrected. Who wouldn't be? Um, that's a that's a separate uh, issue that you could dive into the uh, the psychoanalysis of that. So help me diagnose this archetype. And I see it quite often. Person driving alone in car with mask on. God, I saw this today as I was walking from my car to the gym. I see it every single day here in Los Angeles, very, very frequently. Now, some of these people are workers, so they're afraid, not that they're going to get sick, they're afraid they're going to get fired. That's true. So the idea of compliance and intimidation is a really big factor. So I'm careful not to judge people who have uniforms on because they're being watched and they could lose their jobs. But when somebody's driving as a non-employed, ordinary citizen, not an Uber driver, obviously in their own car, they own their car, they're going to the school, they're going to the church, they're going to the store, they're wearing a mask. There's something clearly wrong. I believe that the reason why people are doing this is largely speaking due to fear. They have become reflexively afraid of not wearing a mask. I see it in my building. When I went to my office at the beginning of this pandemic and would use the bathroom, there would be people who would come in and out with masks on who would run out of the bathroom when they'd see me without a mask. I had one man who was wearing thick rubber gloves, two masks, a face shield, and a giant plastic coat over his body. And he stood outside the hall until I left the bathroom because he would not enter with someone without a mask on. And when I went out, I waved at him and smiled and he started screaming at me, yelling murderer, I don't care about human life. He, was, he looked possessed, he looked psychotic. And when you use the word paranoia earlier, I think it's an accurate one because fear, when it is, as I was saying earlier, not appropriate, is actually a form of psychosis. It's a form of delusion. It's a fixed false belief that's contrary to reality. I'm driving my car. If I don't have a mask on, I'm going to get sick. That is not just fear. It's also paranoia. It's also an irrational belief system. Many, many people are believing in and following this delusional, psychotic, um, almost endemic uh, cloud and have been for so long because they cannot think for themselves. They have rejected rational thought and they've become reflexively obsessed with this altar of safety, which is illusory. It does not exist. In fact, they're more likely to die in a car accident in their car 
than they are of dying of a virus by taking their mask off, but they don't see it. I'm busy, but I have this project that I want to work on and publish it under a pseudonym pen name, The Case to Ban Driving, and use all the same talking points that we, we've used to shut down schools and masks. You know, we must stop the spread of the people on the streets. It's the only way to keep our children safe. You could make the same argument under the false premise, but things that can make you go places quickly come obviously with a risk. We have one minute to break, and I hate to just kind of shorten you into one minute. Just really quickly, just as kind of a foreshadowing to our next segment, talk about the issues you're seeing with young people in particular because of these lockdowns. Young people are particularly vulnerable to this pandemic of fear because they are highly, highly addicted to social media. And they are also highly compliant for the first generation in American history, as far as I know, they want to follow, not attack the man. And that makes them particularly vulnerable to propaganda, indoctrination, peer pressure, and unfortunately, irrational and exceeding of authority commandments from government politicians and bureaucrats. That's well done in less than a minute. You've done that before. <laughs> Everyone, email us your thoughts, freedom at charliekirk.com, author of United States of Fear, Dr. McDonald. Pick up your copy. If you have a loved one or a child that is experiencing a level of paranoia, of anxiety that seems to be unprecedented, this book might be helpful. And I'm going to ask you about the depression, anxiety part of that and why those two things are linked together, which I find to just be interesting. I'm curious about that. Charlie Kirk, subscribe to our podcast. We'll be right back. Welcome back with us is Dr. McDonald, author of United States of Fear. So, Doctor, we had a break, so I kind of cut you off. Talk about the impact, the lockdowns and this mass psychosis is having on the future generations. I'll give you some examples of what I've seen in my practice. A young girl comes with her mother and her mother says, my 14-year-old daughter is completely hysterical. And I said, what do you mean by that? And she said, well, she is attacking me out in public when I don't wear a mask. So give me an example. Well, we were at CVS the other day and I was wearing my mask around my chin and my mother looked, my mother, my daughter looked up at me and she said, mommy, stop being Trumpy. I didn't even know that was an expression, but apparently not wearing your mask among small children, teenage children here in Los Angeles is considered being Trumpy. So there's been a political propagandized aspect to this compliance and fear that takes over the mind of small children and indoctrinates them into a specific partisan political philosophy. I have uh, children who are even younger in my practice who have put their fists through plate glass windows out of frustration because they can't leave their homes. One of them was actually hospitalized in a psychiatric inpatient unit. Two of my patients, both late teens, early 20s, died last year of fentanyl overdoses while they were safer at home under LA Mayor Eric Garcetti's stay-at-home policy. They certainly weren't safer at home when they were found dead. I have never in my career in private practice lost a youth patient to unnatural causes, and I'm losing them now. This is sick. This is evil. This is abusive. 
we, the adults, have failed our children, they are truly suffering. And even the, the children who are adults, the younger patients, the one in their 20s, early 30s, they are unable to go to school. They're unable to return to college because they have these massive booster vaccination shot mandates. Some of them can't actually get jobs. So the fear pandemic is affecting them, even if they themselves are not afraid. And the ones that are afraid, like the girl who came to my office yesterday, 17 years old with her parents, parents not wearing a mask. She was. I told her to take it off. I said, you don't need to wear a mask. She said, I don't feel safe without it because this is her words. There's so much variant out there right now. And I just paused and I looked her right in the face and I said, I'm sorry to tell you this, but the adults have been lying to you. They've been lying to you for two years. You are safe. You do not need to wear a mask. You need to go back to normal life. It made her so uncomfortable to sit there in my office and talk to me without wearing a mask. She kept fiddling with it. She kept pulling it under her nose, dropping it, pulling it up, dropping it. She has become addicted to this sick, obsessive, compulsive, fear-based behavior. I don't know how long it's going to last, but I don't think it's going to go away anytime soon. Two minutes before the break, and we have a long segment where we can really dive into this. Where, what does this mean for the future of this generation? Most medicated, most suicidal, most depressed, most drug overdosed. You've never seen anything like this in your practice. I, mean, I can't imagine it's going to be the freest generation on this trajectory unless big changes are made. It is not. I suspect that we are going to see an entire generation of children who are living in their parents' garages being taken care of by mommy and daddy, scared to go out, scared to work, scared to socialize, scared to date, scared to travel. Basically, what I'm afraid of is that for the first time in history in the United States, we're going to see a generation of young people who are afraid to live, people who are more afraid of a virus than they actually love life. I don't know what this bodes for our future, but I know it's bleak. And I know if we don't stop it now and we don't develop a national recovery program for young people, we're not going to have a future. National recovery program. You're the first person to say that, and I love it. And I want to explore what that would be because – and I, I, I want to ask this after the break because i I, I got to be careful. I get all these angry emails. You said it, though, so I'm going to follow up, which is parents failing their children. When I say that, I get a lot of hate because there's – you know, there's a generational component of people that said, we've done everything perfectly. How dare you question that? But I would beg to differ that this has been one of the great generational thefts in the history of the human species of a generation that has said, we want to keep ourselves safe and we're going to restrict the development of our children. And I want to ask you about the psychology of that, because a lot of this has been adult driven. It's it, that, that girl in your office She's not old enough, nor did she think deeply about the ramifications of wearing masks all the time. She did what she was told to do. The question is, why did the 75 and 80-year-old leaders in D.C. and Sacramento develop this, and why were they okay with it? That's a psychological question I don't have an answer to, but I think you do. United States of Fear with Dr. McDonald. Everyone stay right there. A lot more coming up after the break.
that face diaper off and listen. It's the Charlie Kirk Show. Hello, everybody. Email us directly, freedom at charliekirk.com. With us is Dr. McDonald, author of United States of Fear. Doctor, help me understand how a generation of parents could willingly destroy their children's future and still continue to do so through mask mandates, vaccine mandates, school closures, and all the other things because they are afraid. Help me understand that. Back in May of 2020, the first time that I spoke publicly, I was at an Orange County School Board of Education meeting. And the subject was, should we reopen the schools or not? This was you know, a month or two into the pandemic. Schools were shut down. We were really shocked that they were not yet open. <laughs> Little did we know that they would be closed for nearly two years in most parts of the country, certainly Democrat-controlled parts of the country. And this was Orange County. This is a largely conservative Republican area. I went to the meeting and I listened for several hours. I was almost falling asleep, exhausted. By 10 p.m. it ended. And they said, would you stand up and please just summarize what your thoughts are about this? And I said the following, which was later picked up by the Wall Street Journal in the notables and quotables section. And I said something like this. Why are we here? Why are we discussing school opening, school closures? We're here because we, the adults, are afraid. We are scared. And we are letting down our children. We are abandoning our responsibilities to care for them. We are projecting our anxiety and our fear into our children. We are treating our fear through them. We are sacrificing them. We are using our children as an escape from our own problems. Two years later, we're still in the same position. Still projecting their own fears, their own anxieties onto their children. For the first time in history, we are telling children that they must sacrifice for the safety of adults. The young must sacrifice for the old. When has this ever happened before in any civilized society? It's insane. It's self-destructive. It's antisocial in its very core. The reason why this is still happening, in my view, in my opinion, is that adults have still not stood up, looked at themselves in the mirror, and admitted that they're sick, that they're scared, that they're anxious. That's okay. That's the first step towards a recovery. It's admitting that you have a problem. It's admitting that you have harmed yourself and harmed others, including your children, and that you want to do something about it. You want to make amends and you want to move forward. Not enough adults have done that. Too many adults are still so ensconced into this view of fear and anxiety and panic. They're doubling and tripling down. They are invested in it. They're throwing good money after bad, and they don't want to stop. And they seem kind of uninterested in what is now the sickest and most suicidal generation in history. That's not all parents. We have plenty of wonderful parents that listen to our program. But that is a majority. It is. If you look at the polling, if you look at school closures, you look at mask mandates, you look at the Denver suburbs, you look at Orange County even, you look at Manhattan or you look at the surrounding areas of Portland, uh, there are suburban moms in particular that are super worried that their seven-year-old isn't wearing a mask. And they also just seem kind of unwilling to do something about it. And I think some parents are waking up, obviously, but it, there's, there's so many other implications. So let me ask you about this part of it. We have a lot of friends, I could name many in particular, that have reached out to me. Charlie, my 16-year-old daughter is depressed. And her new normal is just depression, sadness, no hope, no idea kind of what to do. 
um, anxious all the time. We're seeing this reflected in the numbers. I'm sure you're seeing this as well. What is the driving force for that, especially? What, what it, is it just a lockdown? Is it just all the nonsense of negative propaganda? Or are there other things, other elements at play that have kind of created the most depressed generation in history? Well, I'm going to maybe surprise you by saying that depression and anxiety were on the rise even before March of 2020. And it has to do a lot with social media. It has to do with cell phones, particularly smartphones. 2007 was when the first iPhone came out. I remember because I graduated from medical school that year, the iPhone one, I guess it wasn't called one at the time. Now we're at iPhone, what, 10, 11, 12. They become more and more sophisticated, more and more powerful, more and more difficult and obtuse to understand by adults, whereas children just pick them up really quickly. Children are living essentially in a fantasy world. Uh, they are not challenging themselves to go outside, to touch things, physical objects, other people, to speak, to see faces. This all started way before spring of 2020. The problem is that after spring of 2020, we simply accelerated the same direction. It just sped up. It sped up by a factor of 10. So what I expected to see in 10 or 20 years, I was seeing in about one year. And it's because of a confluence of terrible, terrible decisions by adults by government, by bureaucrats, and obviously by parents as well. Sequestration, antisocial distancing, mask wearing, and literally scaring children, scaring them into believing that a normal, healthy life filled with normal, healthy risk is not only dangerous, it's actually anti-virtuous, it's immoral. Yes. Children have been brainwashed into believing that the life that they're living now, which is pathetic, literally pathetic, it is a life of obsessive compulsive disorder. It is mentally ill. But that life is not only safe, it's actually virtuous. This is the life that you should lead. And if anyone isn't leading it, shame on them. Don't let your kids spend the night at that kid's house. That kid is running around like a crazy person threatening to kill grandmother. This is a cabal. It is, it is very sick. It is evil. It is completely avoidable. And it is entirely the fault of adults. You made the best point, which is the projection. Uh, children are consumers or of information, data, circumstances, language, habits, they largely do what they're told. And so it's projected upon them and this kind of forced the hand. And I agree, I think that it, it was totally on the rise before the pandemic and it answered my question um, very clearly. And so I wanna ask this part of it, which is kind of to connect a political part of this. I know that you're not gonna be political with this, but I think it's just generally interesting. What does a country look like that is full of a bunch of antisocial behaviors and tendencies? Well, I wrote a Substack column, my very first one at the end of December. I've written three more since then. I'm posting my next one tomorrow. And that Substack is called Dissident MD, meaning one who opposes the, the administration in the Soviet style. And, and that's really what I'm doing. I'm, I'm offering oppositional views to what's considered the common accepted narrative on the national level. And the title of that substack was Sadism, the next step in the pandemic of fear. What we are seeing now is the emergence of sadism, the intentional infliction of cruelty and humiliation on others simply for our own perverse pleasure. You saw it just yesterday with the posting of a video by two Karens, two, I assume, liberal 
I don't know what their age was, probably in their 40s, white women with masks on an elevator in New York City berating a black man That's right. for not wearing a mask while yelling Black Lives Matter in his face. The man is, is, is more stunned than scared. He's yelling out, did you just hit me? What on earth is going on here? They looked possessed. They looked psychotic. This is what our future looks like, Charlie. Well, this is I, where we're going. I'm, I'm going to get in trouble, but this whole thing is a tyranny of white liberal women. It just is, okay? It is. And, and so talk about that. I'm going to get in trouble for saying it. I don't care. Come after me. But you agree. Tell me why. In my book, United States of Fear, I have an entire section on Karens. The Karens are largely white liberal women, often in suburban areas, but they also exist in the urban areas. They are hysterical, absolutely hysterical. Now, my, my opinion, my view on why they've become hysterical is not just due to their own faults. It's also due to the failings of men. I believe that men have largely abandoned their masculine responsibilities. They've left a vacuum of protection, courage, leadership so in our true. culture. And women have jumped in. Now, conservative women are fine jumping in because they're used to jumping in. They're used to protecting and cooking and cleaning and going out with the gun and taking care of the, of the livestock women, they go to church, they're, they're, they're stoured. They don't, they don't depend on the government when their husband isn't around. They depend on themselves and their neighbors in their church. What do white liberal women depend on? They have nobody. All they have is, is, is the top up there. And it's not God, it's bureaucrats and government. So men have left them. Men have disappeared. They jump in, they fill the void. They become hysterical. Literally, they've lost their minds. They are, they are almost possessed in a certain way. And they go crazy trying to control their environment by yelling at people who differ from them. And it's not just control because they, they want to order people around. It's because it gives them a sense of purpose and meaning and allows them to feel that they have power yes. because they inherently feel powerless. They are dependent on the government. And now the men have left them. So where do they turn? They turn towards controlling everyone else. Well, that's exactly right. They have a yearning to be an autocrat. And what better way to find purpose than to go try and invade Poland or whatever, right? I mean, that's an, that's an extreme example, but it's true, right? Like, if I can't invade Poland, I'm going to scream at some black guy in an elevator. It's the same sort of psychological impulse, right, that made Alexander go east endlessly to India that also has some crazy woman screaming at someone in the elevator. So yes. we have two minutes in this segment. I'm going to focus on the male aspect of it. Why are men so weak? Well, what is what is it with this kind of betaization of the American male? Has the American culture become too feminine? Is that why we've had such an awful response to this? The American culture has been largely feminized and also neutered. I have two 17, 27-year-olds in my practice, one male, one female. The 27-year-old woman has come to me and she said she's very attractive, beautiful, smart, intelligent, very dateable for someone in that age group. Where are all the men? What happened to them? Nobody looks at me. Nobody asks me out. I am alone. I am miserable. I am depressed. Well, the answer is the 27-year-old male patient who comes in the next day. I can't find any women. I'm scared to ask them yep. out. That's right. I'm on my phone playing video games and masturbating at home and flip-flapping on Hinge all day long. Do you know why? Because he was falsely accused of rape by a mentally ill young woman at his frat house two years ago when he was in college out of state. And he went through two years, two years of court cases and several hundred thousand dollars of attorney's fees in order to extricate himself from this. He is frightened. He is scared. He does not want to go after women in a masculine way and say, I like you. I desire you. I want to date you. Because if he says anything like that, he may end up becoming arrested again. 
And it's not just that instance. I guarantee you when things like that happen, it, it's like a virus, get it, to the hundred other men that he knows or the thousand other men. They all see that as a societal signal, right? So because, you know, use those exa- I use those examples that people say, oh, no, that's just a one-off thing. Like, you don't understand. When that happens in a community or in a campus, everyone hears about it, false accusations, and it creates this retreat towards feminization, which might answer why we have the gayest generation in history. And I'm not saying that as a pejorative. It just is. It is the gayest generation in history. Forty percent of young people are either lesbian, gay or transgender, according to Arizona Christian University. Dr. McDonald, we have one more segment left. It's United States of Fear. I could go even deeper on this, and it's super interesting and honestly really important because we are living under this mass formation psychosis. Ooh, you're not allowed to say that. Well, we're going to talk about that in the final segment because I'm super interested. Charlie Kirk with Dr. McDonald. Be right back. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. Dr. McDonald, author of United States of Fear. Okay, we have five minutes. Let's pack as much as we can in. What is mass formation psychosis? Mass formation psychosis is a neologism that was coined by Dr. Robert Malone that has been largely repeated recently in the news. But what he's actually trying to say is mass delusional psychosis, which is a term that I actually began using almost two years ago in fall of 2020. It's also a pickup off of Dr. Matthias Desmet's phrase mass formation, which means mass psychosis, which describes the exact same thing which is an entire society of people all at the same time, essentially losing their rational faculties and following a fixed false belief, such as we're all going to die of a virus and we can survive only if we stay at home, wear masks and stop working and stop going to school. That is the mass delusional psychosis of 2020 through to today. What are the where does it come from? How, how do you pull that off? They call it a conspiracy theory. The smear artists of the regime media is that is that really possible to convince a country of 330 million people of something or what, what's the psychology behind all that? It is possible if it's been pre-planned. Now, I'm not saying it's a conspiracy, but for the last several decades, we have been primed or groomed, I would say, just like a sexual predator grooms his victim to normalize what is unhealthy behavior, i.e. fear, panic, trauma. We have been told by the bureaucrats, by the corporations, by the politicians, by the media, that we should be afraid all of the time. We should be afraid of economic collapse, ecological collapse, systemic racism, rape culture, rape campus, Donald Trump. We moved into 2020 already anxious. We were already vibrating with fear as a culture. Everything around us is dangerous. And wow, perfect opportunity. Now we have something from China that is killing people, and we don't know exactly how or why. It could kill everybody, maybe it could kill nobody, but if it does kill everybody, we better do something about it. So the government and the media and the corporations all saw the opportunity for themselves to jump in, to take control, and to say, we are going to save you, but it's gonna come at a cost. It's gonna come at a cost of liberty, judgment, individuation, and ultimately, you will all be dependent on us. But you will be alive and you will be safe. And we all bought into it because we were all primed to do it. So in closing, I know you're writing a book about this, two minutes remaining. What can we do about all this? Well, 
in my first book, United States of Fear, I describe the way forward. And one of the first steps, and Dennis Prager has said this quite frequently, is to find like-minded people, to come together, to support one another in a zone of safety, fearlessness, and sanity. In my upcoming book, which is tentatively going to be titled Freedom from Fear, a 12-step program to an individual and national recovery modeled after AA and Jordan P. Peterson's 12 Rules for Life, I'm going to initiate the book by describing how fear has become an addiction. And the first thing you do when you're an addict is you look in the mirror and you say, I am addicted to fear. It has harmed me. It has harmed my friends. It has harmed my loved ones. I have lost control, but I want to move forward and I'm willing to make amends. And the last step in the 12-step program is mentorship. Once you've passed through all of the first 11 steps, and you have the knowledge of the fearlessness and the courage, you go out and you convert others and you bring them to abstinence, abstinence from fear. I'm going to outline this all in very clear, very well-referenced, well-researched, easily understandable steps so that people can work through it on their own. And those who are fearless, they will be able to use it to help others drop their fear. And then we can come together as a country. We can unite. We can put aside all this nonsense, this insanity. We can realize that we actually all have a lot in common. Anyone who's not on the left, anyone at all can find common ground with the others. I totally agree with that. That's a, if you're not one of the Wokies, one of the Bolsheviks, the Leninites, the Maoists, which I really believe is five to seven percent of the population, legitimately, if they actually knew what it all was, not the, the vapor. And by the way, that's the antisocial, by the way. That's I mean, you basically have five to seven percent of people that mental you, illness. That's right. Yes. Pathology, sociopathy. Yes. Under a political guise. But they're sick. There's nothing we can do about them. That's they're right. They're hopeless. They're lost. Don't try to convert them. That's right. You just defeat them. And then you build a overwhelming Correct. consensus and coalition with the same team reality. People that don't want to exactly. live in some sort of anti-gravity environment that could be enacted <laughs> if we have a hundred trillion dollar spending bill. United States well of fear. Dr. McDonald, phenomenal. We're going to have you back on soon. I think this is one of the most important topics because it's not just about epidemiology or all that. There's a deeper game no. at play here, which is the human mind and the soul and the spirit and how those things all kind of incorporate with one another. United States of Fear, check it out right now. Doctor, thank you so much. We'll have you back on soon. Thank you, Charlie. Love to. Thanks. Everybody, email us your thoughts, freedom at charliekirk.com. That's all we have for you today. Take out your phone right now and subscribe to the Charlie Kirk Show podcast. If you want to hear that conversation in its entirety, Charlie Kirk Show podcast. God bless you guys. Talk to you soon.